Mr. Derek Veenhoff. He's better known as Deke. Nah. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Nah. Yeah, Deke. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Decast, episode 92. I'm your host, Decatel. I'm here with Dr. Dan Wilson of the Debunk the Funk YouTube channel. How's it going, Dr. Wilson? Doing great. Going well. How are you? That's good. That's good. Me too. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today. So I'll talk about how I found out about you first. Now, you've got a growing YouTube channel, and Dr. Kevin Fult uh, retweeted one of your uh, videos uh, your series that you're working on now the disinformation dozen mm-hmm. um, and I think you're about you say you're halfway through or past halfway now through this series I th- I think this yes. ne- this coming week is going to be number seven of out of the dozen so nice getting close yeah and so why don't we give uh, for people who don't know you more of your academic background and uh, and a little bit of uh, yeah your personal background if you if you will sure yeah uh, so I got my PhD uh, at Carnegie Mellon University studying biological sciences. Uh, Specifically, I was doing a lot of hardcore molecular biology. Uh, So ins and outs of how certain molecules work, um, particularly the ribosome. Uh, But I don't want to get too technical with that stuff. Uh, But uh, that's what I studied during my PhD. And now I work uh, in industry. I work at a company called Eurofins. Uh, and on the side, I just do this YouTube channel called uh, Debunk the Funk, where I go over things that frustrate me in the uh, that I see out in the news about people misrepresenting science or misinterpreting science, and in some cases, you know, outright lying about science to profit from it. Um, so that's kind of my attempt to uh, add something more meaningful to the. Uh, use my degree for something more meaningful than, you know, uh, working a nine to five. Totally. Totally. And uh, uh, you're doing an amazing job, by the way. Uh, It's, you know, it's tough for people to parse through this stuff. So uh, to have somebody like you, that's really like doing the work and sort of organizing it for people and putting it honestly in pretty plain English, uh, you don't get too technical unless you have to, when you're Mm. being specific, but and we'll get into the who the disinformation doesn't is and all that. But um, and we're going to talk a lot about COVID and vaccines today. Obviously, that's the topic of the day. And uh, that's a lot of what your videos are focused on, because that's just the we're in the middle of the pandemic or hopefully the tail end, we might say so. Um, but I wanted to touch on you've mentioned before that you used to be a conspiracy theorist. Um, oh, yeah. I would kind of say I was as well, maybe more in my teen years. So would you tell people a little bit about that and then how you got into science and how you changed your mind? Yeah. So definitely in my teen years as well, I kind of drifted into being a conspiracy theorist uh, and then I got super obsessed. So what happened was I, I watched the documentary loose change on YouTube uh, all about nine 11 and I got sucked right in Um both my parents have uh, higher degrees. And so I was always interested in science and education, but I was pretty terrible at it <laughs> in grade school. But seeing that documentary uh, made me feel like I was being let in on something that no one else knew about. It made me feel like, you know, smart, <laughs> I guess. Right. Uh, but it was the, really the thrill of like seeking truth that 
really sucked me in because it revealed this whole other world that I thought was totally real. (laughs) I totally fell for all those things in loose change. Um, And I got obsessed. I would argue with people online about it in comment sections a lot. (laughs) I mean, uh, it, to the point where it was like unhealthy, but uh, eventually, you know, um, because I was interested in science and education, I ended up, you know, wanting to pursue that. And eventually uh, I'd say towards the end of my high school years, uh, I got better at um, understanding science. Thanks to, I think, thanks to a really great teacher. Um, And so as I started learning more about how science is done and that, you know, scientists are always asking questions and they're probably asking the same questions that conspiracy theorists are asking. But the difference is that scientists do the work to actually find the answers to those questions. And they do it in a way that uses the scientific method. So it's rigorous. It's, it's asking if this is true, then how do we disprove it? How do we, what would disprove it if it were not true? They come at it from that angle and they just uh, are kind of relentless with it. And so as I got more and more into science, uh, learned more and more about how it works, understood more about it, I kind of drifted away from that conspiracy mindset. And it wasn't immediate. Uh, it was gradual. Like, uh, And I, I'd say it didn't even start entirely with, you know, in the classroom, I'd be arguing with people online and they would bring up a point that I just couldn't address. You know, I knew deep down I couldn't address it, but in the moment there was no way I was going to admit to some random person over the internet that I was wrong. So stuck to my guns and just was like totally, (laughs) totally uh, sticking to this idea that uh, 9-11 was a conspiracy. And, uh, but it planted kind of a seed of doubt that, over time and by learning more about science grew into this. Okay. I was definitely wrong (laughs) that that's definitely not true. And gradually I came out of it, um, and continued, um, scientific training in college, learning how to actually work in a lab and, uh, do experiments, how to think like a scientist. And that continued into my PhD where, um, uh, that kind of PhD training teaches you that, you know, you're probably wrong about almost every th- hypothesis you're going to make in the lab, <laughs> right. but you have to go out and test it. You have to go out and do like the experiments to find out, okay, all this stuff I just told my committee in my thesis um, proposal, all that's probably wrong <laughs> now, yeah. now that I tested it. So I have to go back and rethink things. So yeah, um, yeah sorry. That's kind of just my, uh, journey from conspiracy theorist to scientist. Now that makes me think of a lot of different things, but so for you, do you know what camp you fell in as far as nine 11? Like, did you think that George Bush had orchestrated it or did you think that, uh, you know, cause there's different camps. Some people think <laughs> the planes were holograms or right. There's different. So did, yeah. is, was there one thing that started the cascade for you that like, uh, that you can remember or. Yeah. So, so I definitely thought that, some people within the U S government had orchestrated it. Um, I never thought the planes were holograms though. That, that was actually like, um, I I had been into it for 
a good while before I heard that for the first time. Yeah, it was a later. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't a super early one. It was a little later on that that came about. But mm-hmm. one, the big thing with 9/11 for me, I mean, the whole jet fuel can't melt steel beams has become such a meme these days. But right, uh, you know, the it's a false premise where they sit because you don't need to melt the beams. You just need mm-hmm. to bend them such exactly. that the building collapses. And so it's those kinds of false premises that uh, you run into a lot with all these things that I'm sure as you, be, I could guess, as you became more scientifically minded, uh, you probably employed a lot more of those uh, tools to break those things down because some people might not understand why, why would science help you to determine who did nine 11, but, because it's more of a political or sort of uh, actionary consequence thing with different actors, like who is responsible for this thing. But I could see that um, just the rigorous thinking and sort of the ad- admitting you don't know, and then looking for real evidence, right? Uh, right. One small example that people always bring up with 9-11 is the uh, insurance policy that was taken out uh, a month before or whatever it was a week before by the, owner of the buildings, which when you look into that, it is um, a standard insurance policy that all buildings have that Mm -hmm. renews every so often. Um, Right. So, yeah. um, And I I believe he actually lost money uh, after all was said and done. So, right. Exactly. So, um, but I guess we don't want to spend too much time on 9-11, but um, (laughs) so I have a number of notes here I wanted to go through. I wanted to, Mm -hmm. if, we could do a speed speed round at some point to get through a lot of the debunking things. Cause I know we could spend hours on each thing, but uh, uh-huh. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the techniques or the rhetoric that say anti-vaxxers, uh, COVID deniers use. Um, and one thing I see a lot is the gish gallop, uh, the gish yeah. gallop technique. And if people don't know what that is, um, as far as I understand it, it's when you're debating somebody and you use say 10 or 12 different points in rapid succession uh, so sort of confusing the listener or your opponent uh, such that they can't, they might forget some of your points and therefore, you know, they can't uh, fully argue against it. And so I see this a lot with some of the disinfo dozen that you've been uh, debunking mm-hmm. where they're doing that. They're also employing a lot of like almost yelling, uh, <laughs> maniacal laughter. Uh, you know, Tucker Carlson does that a lot, random maniacal laughter, just these different sort of, uh, you know, animated voices and surprised um, uh, reactions to what they're saying. And uh, I just find, I don't know, what do you think about that? That there's all these mm-hmm. techniques that they use like that. Yeah, there are definitely common tactics uh, that lots of people like uh, similar to the disinformation doesn't uh, use. Um, and one, one tactic that I've been uh, kind of noticing more and more lately is a lot of a lot of them will reference or claim to reference science. And while they're referencing this science, they'll say they admitted it. They'll say the scientists admitted it themselves or just Mm -hmm. they admitted it when talking about something. And that to me is starting to become more and more of a red flag uh, because uh, almost always, if you look into it, it's either a quote mine, they just, plucked a quote out of context and are using it incorrectly or nothing was admitted. Like it's just completely misconstrued. Um, Yeah. And you're implying by saying the word admitted, you're implying that they did something nefarious and then now are copying to this 
you know, like right. a guilty plea of whatever thing you're. Exactly. Yeah. It's totally, it's totally making it out to be this nefarious thing that was suddenly brought into light by saying they, they admitted it and it's all, it's never really the case. Um, I could just name one example um, where a lot of uh, conspiracy theory memes or Facebook posts lately have been talking about the CDC uh, admitting that they changed their um, PCR test to um, uh, for specifically for people who have been vaccinated. Um, so for those who don't know the PCR test, uh, there's a, a lot of terminology going around in the media that scientists have been familiar with for a long time, but basically the uh, cycle threshold, the CT number, um, which I'm not sure how many people have heard of, but I'm not we sure talked how about many... it on the show a bit. So people might be familiar, but yeah. Okay. We can go more into what that is if you want, but basically the claim is that the, they lowered the CT number. So they made the test um, less sensitive for people who have been vaccinated. Uh, that's not true. Um, nothing, no, nothing of the sort was admitted. The people are referring to a document where um, the CDC is asking for clinical samples so that they could sequence coronavirus that has been found to be infecting vaccinated people. And in order to sequence that virus and in order to work with it, they're asking that people send them clinical samples that were positive with a CT value of less than 28, less than or equal to 28. So nothing, no criteria for what's positive has been changed. None of that. And no guidelines have been changed. They're just asking for very specific samples because when they get the samples, they want to be able to work with them right away. And yeah, and if there we, isn't we've enough virus. About, um, then, yeah, we talked about false positives and false negatives as well on this show. We had a gentleman okay, who cool. was a lab tech who uh, uh, did the show, and he works in a COVID lab, and he sort of explained that uh, as well. And that gives me uh, thought on another general point, which is um, with anti-vaxxers or conspiracy theorists regarding COVID, how how many of it, how how much of it is just straight up lying? versus just misunderstanding like to me it seems that there may be people who have uh motives maybe they're trying to sell a book or something like that but we can't really say uh you know 100 percent of these people are just trying to sell a book must have, some of them must be just misinformed and not understanding the science in fact in some of your videos we show some of these guys talking they're almost asking as they're saying these points about coronavirus they're asking themselves is this right what i'm saying or they're they're seeming confused in the science and sometimes you will pause there and you'll you'll break it down for people like where they are confused so yeah, what do you think about that like are they just misinformed do they have agendas like what yeah i think it's a mixed bag i mean i honestly try to give people the benefit of the doubt you know uh, especially having been a conspiracy theorist myself where i genuinely i genuinely believed what i believed, <laughs> but, uh, it was never, I never felt like I was the bad guy. Of course, I always felt like I was, um, you know, believing what was true and trying to expose the truth or whatever. But, um, you know, I do think that at some point there are some people in that 
COVID conspiracy space who are total grifters, who just capitalize on misinformation, they profit from it, and they have to know they're lying. They, they really stealthily pick around um, certain scientific terminology, certain quotes, and they very strategically cherry pick things in a way that when I listen to them, I think there's no way that they did that on accident. They must have pulled that out purposely and misrepresented it. Uh, and the, I can only think of a few names that I've debunked where I'm convinced that that's what's going on. But most of the time I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. They might, they might be misinformed. They might misunderstand. And the thing I try to remember is that this is really genuinely unprecedented. This is a huge pandemic and so many emotions, so many um, things are going into it that can just really upset people. And having that out, having that um, idea that, oh, you know, maybe there's not this virus out there that we have to worry about and change our lives over. It's actually just a lie or you know, some variation of that idea. That can be more comforting than the reality of yeah, there's a virus out there and we have to deal with it. Uh, yeah. So now, how yeah. can we, um, how can we make sense of um, like Judy Mikovits, I believe the pandemic documentary uh, lady is, oh, yeah. she actually mm-hmm. is a virologist, like a PhD. Is that correct? Like, didn't she actually yeah. work with Fauci and there was some, she got arrested for forging or stealing <laughs> her own documents or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But people will say, you know, Oh, well this person's, uh, you know, a doctor or a PhD or a virologist, and they're saying that COVID's not that bad or COVID doesn't exist, or isn't there always like one to 2% of anybody in any field who believes and something that is incorrect? And how is that even possible? Like, uh, if you could break that down at all, I don't know what you think about that, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so the story with Judy Mikovits, I'll just touch on that first. Uh, yeah, she's a virologist and there's no evidence that I know of that she actually worked with Fauci or interacted with him in the ways that she claims. Mm. Um, It could be true, but I I've seen no verification of that. Um, She did work with um, one of the scientists who was at the time leading the one of, one of a, a few scientists around the world who was leading the discovery of the causative agent of AIDS, which turned out to be HIV. Um, But, you know, she never really published anything groundbreaking as a, uh, as a graduate student or as a postdoc in that person's lab, which, you know, that's not a dig on her. It's just most graduate students don't end up publishing groundbreaking work. And, uh, and the only reason I say that is because a lot of people try to paint her as one of the most accomplished scientists of all time, which is not true. (laughs) Um, but uh, then after that, you know, she kind of went out of science for, a, for a little bit and then suddenly got, um, hired by these people who, um, who wanted to start researching, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. They were uh, wealthy philanthropists who wanted to start a research institute for chronic fatigue syndrome. And they, hired her because they met her because she was bartending 
on a yacht or something. Right. Uh, the story, the story goes something like that. Yeah. Um, but as the head of this research Institute, she claimed to have found a viral cause for chronic fatigue syndrome. And the paper actually got published in science, which was the, which is still one of the biggest impact scientific journals you can publish in. But uh, over time, that story unraveled. Uh, that virus was found to not actually cause chronic fatigue syndrome. It was found to not uh, cause much of anything, really. And it was found to be a contaminant, a, local, a common lab contaminant. Um, and it was, it was a big deal at the time. I mean, there are plenty of news stories written about this at the time um, because they thought that it was really important that there was a virus found to have caused this syndrome. But as science does, they reviewed the data. People could not re reproduce it. People could not uh, find out that this virus actually caused these things. And so her story unraveled. That, pa that paper was retracted. And she actually got fired from that, uh, that um, research institute that was started by those philanthropists. Um, and the whole arrest thing, she apparently <laughs> kept some confidential lab documents. Yeah, up. something minor, but still kind of strange. But yeah. yeah. No, but she's the, also, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I was going to say, but the overall picture here, right? Like, yes, she's a virologist. Yes, she has a degree. Um, but you don't want to have to look into the background of everybody who says something questionable. Right. And you yeah. don't, you might not necessarily find anything weird about their background. They might just be an expert who has a degree who says something weird. Um, but I think what a lot of people need to understand is that scientists generally don't talk to the public. Scientists generally have this attitude of, you know, I'm going to work in my lab and I'm going to produce good work. And I'm going to, if I'm going to talk to people outside my lab, it's going to be colleagues, you know, it's going to be people at conferences. It's going to be um, people who understand science, maybe science reporters. They're not really going to go out of their way to talk to the general public on mainstream news or anything like that. That's an, that's an attitude that is um, changing. I think it's not, it's not all encompassing in science, but the attitude is very strong within the community. Um, so when you get these people who loudly speak out against uh, quote unquote uh, status quo things about coronavirus, they're going to get a lot of attention um, because they're saying these inflammatory things that are on the surface, you know, almost exciting, right? It, it would be, it would be almost more exciting to believe that some of these conspiracy theories are true. Yes. Totally. Right. Yeah. Uh, so they're inflammatory, they're attractive ideas. Uh, so it, but scientists aren't going to really go out of their way to come out of their, uh, labs and fight this stuff because part of the reason is because scientists already have a huge to-do list. You know, they, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if anyone, if any of your listeners know like the path to being a scientist, but it's not, it's not very glamorous. Like you don't make much money as a graduate student, but you're working, you're, you're encouraged to work like 
you know, 10 hour days. Um, and then as a postdoc, you don't make much more than you do as a graduate student, but you're still encouraged to work long hours. And if you're not working those long hours, it's kind of frowned upon in a lot of, in a lot of labs still. So a lot of scientists don't have the energy or the platform to go out and challenge those people who are saying the ridiculous things that scientists know are know to be ridiculous. They're complete. Most scientists are completely content by saying those people are crazy and stupid. And then they laugh about it with their lab mates. And yeah. On. Yeah. Which is, which is a big topic and it comes up on the show and just in my personal life a lot, because I'm not a trained scientist, but I have, I have close friends that are trained scientists, but um, it's this thing of, yeah, that you like the science communicator is a newer thing. And we have famous guys like Carl Sagan or Neil Tyson and mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Kevin Folta, shout out to him. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, yourself, hopefully one day, you know, your channel will grow and all that. But uh, it is a field that is, like you said, there's, 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 there's a disconnect between the average citizen um, and then scientists and people who practice science. And we need to bridge that gap because it creates dangers like vaccine hesitancy and different things like that, that come about, which is I would assume why you're doing this work is to mm-hmm. sort of uh, lower those dangers around the world and get people more. Uh, this is what this show is about too, or what I try to be about is getting excited about science, even if you don't fully understand it, but mm-hmm. this, the technology that we have access to today is amazing and we should yeah. take full advantage of that. And we're like, we're like superheroes, some of us, yeah. not myself, but uh, you know, the scientists are like superheroes in that we've created these utilities that uh, can defeat pandemics and that, but of course you have people that don't like lockdowns, but then they don't like vaccines. And so then they <laughs> yeah. just, they're stuck with a pandemic. So mm-hmm. now in Judy, Mikevitz, she also is one of those people who says I'm not anti-vax, but dot, oh, yeah. dot, dot. Right. Yep. And she speaks at anti-vax events and all this. Uh, you come to, uh, into, you run into this a lot lately. Um, this statement, I'm not anti-vax, I'm just anti-COVID vaccine. Like, in fact, a lot of these people, they say, I am vaxxed, I take the flu shot, or I take uh, measles, although all those are fine, except the COVID vaccine is an experiment, which is another Mm -hmm. falsity that, uh, you know, even myself, I don't take the flu shot, not because I'm just lazy, I just haven't got it. Sure, uh, yeah. As I can remember, Um, but I'm super pro- COVID vaccine because I, I'm a DJ and I need my gigs back. <laughs> it's my, <laughs> you know, one of my things, but yeah. Yeah. So could yeah. we maybe do like a speed round where we kind of jump through a couple of these uh, COVID, uh, you know, denial things or these definitely sure. And then we won't spend too much time on each one, but maybe people who are listening, who are like concerned about some of these things. So, and some of these you've covered and others I haven't seen you cover yet, but so event 201, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There was an event at like a fire drill before a fire. <laughs> yeah. They do a reenactment of something to determine if they're prepared for it. So they, there was one of these uh, about COVID. And uh, like you said in one of your videos, it's, it's, it's just like doing a fire drill. It's a common yeah, practice. Exactly. And I, I think this is also related to the idea that, you know, five or 10 or 15 years ago, they were warning about a pandemic, therefore it was planned. I mean, it just <laughs> yeah. seems so like, I think that's an easy one that we can just gloss over now because I don't mm-hmm. know what else to say about it. Like they, they would say this about, um, you know, like Alex Jones used to say this every time there was a shooting, you know, a school shooting or there was two shooters or one shooter. And then mm-hmm. he would say, oh, I just found out a week ago they did a drill, a shooter drill. So that <laughs> means it was planned. 
And I was always like, I don't really get the logic there. Like, no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's totally the same logic as saying, Oh, you know, this building burned down, but a month ago they had their annual fire drill. Like, okay. So, so what? (laughs) It's just just another event that happened in proximity in time to this event. Right. And, and the, the worry about a pandemic that has been around for uh, longer than the last five or so years. I mean, it's been, yeah. Scientists have understood that, pandemics are a huge threat for a really long time. And we've been dealing with, uh, you know, what we call zoonotic outbreaks or diseases that come from animals. Um, We've dealt with AIDS, HIV. We've seen Ebola emerge. We've seen Zika emerge. We've seen other uh, SARS viruses emerge. Um, And even before then, we've seen, uh, it can name very, ambiguous and scary viruses. If you look into their stories like Nipah or Hendra or um, uh, herpes B even is a really, you know, concerning story, (laughs) but uh, the threat has been there. The threat has been there for so long and it it even freaked out um, uh, president George W. Bush uh, back in the early two thousands. Cause after the anthrax scare, you know, he started, he started getting all worried about um, biosecurity and he learned about the threat of a pandemic bird flu. And so bird flu is, of course, influenza, but it's a type of influenza that has uh, very few uh, historical cases in humans, but the very few cases that have happened have had a really high mortality rate. So up in like the 70% mortality rate. 50 to 70, I believe. And it's, so that's huge. That's actually terrifying to think what, what, what might happen if the bird flu suddenly got better at infecting humans, would it, would it still be as deadly and how bad would that be? I mean, that's, it, it freaked out George Bush. So he, he started, you know, really preparing uh, America for a pandemic and that those efforts continued into the Obama administration um, unfortunately they started to get funding for them started to run out, um, during the Trump administration. And he chose not to, um, continue those efforts, uh, and sometimes actively cut those efforts, but yeah, which is another yeah. thing that people deny that say that, that, that didn't <laughs> yeah. happen. But I mean, again, you just look at, I mean, there's a track record of these things. I don't think there is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, COVID relatively speaking is a mild, pandemic now i'm not saying that it's mild yeah no i totally i totally know what you mean yes and so some people might misunderstand that but what i mean is uh like you said that they've been warning about a pandemic there will be another one Mm -hmm. and depending on whether that's 10 20 or 50 years in the future we may or may not be well prepared for it maybe people will forget the mistakes of of the past right but i'm remain optimistic and from what i've heard um what people think is just that because we made certain mistakes uh, for this pandemic that uh, we're potentially we're going to be ready for something uh, next that comes along. Right. And, and it could be relatively speaking worse than COVID. Right. So. Right. Uh, yeah. And because w- in a sense, we got lucky that the next big pandemic in our lifetime was uh, COVID and not something worse yeah. Yeah. because um, yeah, if it was bird flu, you know, 
we, we've had millions of people worldwide die with yeah. the COVID mortality rate being, we think somewhere around 1%. Uh, I mean, that number is not going to be definite until yeah. uh, later when the data becomes become more clear. But if it were something like bird flu, which, as I said, has a mortality rate upwards of 50, 70%, uh, that would that would be the like that'd be the zombie apocalypse that people imagined yeah, exactly. I, I would think you know and a lot uh, of what we talk about here this common thread is sort of i think why people are divided is just your sort of perspective uh on the pandemic generally that either it's it's mild because it's a 99 percent survival rate or it's severe because it's a one it's like it's hard to get through to people who don't think it's serious that it is serious and mm-hmm. i mean I think the effects that we've seen are with all the restrictions in place. So, I mean, people need to really take their mind out of this timeline and put it into a counterfactual timeline where we did not put restrictions or take any efforts to stop it and think what would happen. And you got to understand exponentiality. Like virus doesn't just spread one to one. There is a exponential factor, which Mm -hmm. here in Ontario in our province, we saw, we we had a third wave because we opened things a little too soon in February. We got a giant third wave, which now is uh, hopefully going to zero and there's going to be no fourth wave. Hopefully, yeah. all this. I mean, Canadians are good at taking their vaccines. We're learning. So um, mm-hmm. I think they're going pretty well, but let's uh, let's smash through a couple of these. So COVID-19 sure. came from a lab in Wuhan, the, this level four lab, which Dr. Kevin Fulta actually uh, visited. I, I heard he oh, did. He? I didn't know that. Yeah. So um, now this thing, the problem with this thing is, I've read an in-depth Reddit post from a PhD in virology who explained the various reasons why it couldn't have come from a lab. And it seemed very black and white and pretty straightforward. It didn't seem like uh, we were pretty sure it didn't come from a lab. It it sounded like, you know, the evidence that they gave was that it just, it's just basically impossible. And some of the evidence that was coming out that it did come from a lab was that, you know, workers there got a cold a week or mm-hmm. two before and things like that. But you have guys like um, Brett, is it Brett Weinstein? The, the, yeah, one, yeah. the one brother there who's, he is uh, again in, in this field mm-hmm, and he mm-hmm. keeps, he keeps saying that it's came from a lab and you hear a lot of these talking heads more and more bringing up this, this concept that it came from a lab or that uh, it couldn't have come from an animal or because we don't know exactly which animal it came from. Therefore, you know, it must have escaped from a lab, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what you have to th- say about that. Yeah. So, I mean, in my mind, there are two ideas on that end. There was the idea that it was engineered in the lab and there's the idea that it escaped from a lab and the idea that it was engineered. I mean, that that's pretty easy to say, like, no, we we're we're very sure. Cause it would have been more, it would have been more if, if it was engineered Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been so, what's the word, not as effective, like they, if they would have engineered it better, but nature just made this thing that was sort of strong, like sort of effective, but not really. Yeah. So if all you have to do really is look at the genome of the virus. So when scientists look at the genome of the virus, we find that it's completely consistent with evolution. We find that, um, you know, it matches certain sequences that are found in other known coronaviruses um, in ways that tell us that this virus probably jumped from bats, which was its original host, excuse me, host reservoir to other 
intermediary hosts. So uh, for example, like pigs and birds are intermediary hosts for influenza. And the virus might jump to one of those animals before jumping to humans. Uh, with COVID, with uh, coronaviruses, they can jump to lots of different animals. Uh, so coronaviruses are found in snakes, bats, pangolins, uh, turtles, um, uh, you know, mammals, uh, like little palm civets, which are like raccoon cat things. Uh, you can find coronaviruses in lots of different animals. So you look at the genetic uh, evidence and it tells you that this virus probably over a long course of several decades jumped around from bats to possibly one or more intermediary hosts before making its way through humans, either, you know, from those intermediary hosts back to bats and then to humans or what exactly we don't know, but there's no evidence in the genome of direct manipulation. Uh, as far as leaking from a lab, you know, you see, you start to see a lot of headlines now about people saying, saying, Oh, it's, it's possible. And I think people are uh, interpreting that to mean like, Oh, people are really considering this. It's well, well, no, uh, in my mind, the lab leak idea has always been theoretically possible. Like the, the idea that the virus naturally came from an animal to a human and then started spreading throughout the human population, that is technically not um, discounted in a lab leak scenario. You could imagine a scenario where an animal was brought into a lab, yeah. a worker got sick, or the virus somehow otherwise leaked out of the building, and that's where the pandemic started. That's theoretically possible. Is it likely? I don't think so at all. Uh, the reason being, the Wuhan Institute of Virology is a BSL-4 uh, biosafety lab uh, level four institute. Um, they have a lot of precautions. Um, and yes, those precautions are not perfect. However, uh, with all those precautions, you compare it to a wet market, a live animal market where you have animals being shipped to the market. You have illegal, illegally poached animals being shipped live to the market and kept in cages in close proximity to each other. Uh, you know, defecating, urinating in close proximity to each other, spreading potentially uh, viruses between each other. And you have humans walking around, buying the animals, um, slaughtering the animals. I mean, it's it's been identified as a really dangerous uh yeah, so hot now zone so for... we're comparing the both of them relatively speaking now this this level four lab with a lot of precautions and a wet market with the animals mixed and no precautions i mean right. what is more likely right exactly and and then even if they did let it leak i mean isn't there going to be a whistleblower somewhere or they're gonna they're gotta you would they have found out by now it just it's been yeah that's the yeah. that's that's the, that's exactly the other thing you know to to assume that to say that oh i'm weighing this idea that um, it was leaked from a lab really heavily. You have to kind of assume that there has been a big cover-up, right? You have to assume that there, that all whistleblowers have been silenced. You have to assume that the lab actually had the virus and that all investigations so far into the samples that uh, other people have gotten their hands on from that institute um, were somehow, you know, uh, 
hiding the coronavirus. So, um, the, the other th- thing is, is the, the China, there's this anti-China sentiment that has yeah. been brewing mm-hmm. for maybe a decade or more or longer. Right. And that it also creates this false premise where we're saying, well, it's China. So they, they're just covering it up or they're lying about it because it's China and that's just right. what they do. But I mean, you got to understand this is just like every country. We talk about this, we have the government and then we have the people, right? It's mm-hmm. Chinese people are people as well. People who work at the lab, like they have altruistic motives as well. They're not all just trying to cover things up for their government. Yeah. I think, I think it's great to hear you say that. Cause I think it's kind of, I mean, it's dangerous to start saying like, oh, it's China. So, you know, you know I mean, them. It's uh, a lie or whatever they say is a lie kind of thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, but you could easily just, you could imagine uh, someone in a foreign country easily saying the same thing about the U.S. Like, oh, it's the U.S., you know, the CIA, shady history. And yep. like, yeah, sure. That's true. But we're people, we, we're not, you know, Yeah. we, we don't think that um, the U.S. is all bad or all about uh, secrecy. Uh, so, you know, maybe China is a little bit more secretive about things, but to assume that the, an entire nation of that, one of the most populated nations in the world is keeping all these secrets airtight. It's, it's a little bit of a leap, right? So, (laughs) yeah, I just think there's this thing people forget about that. Uh, we do have a globalized society now and nations do need to rely on each other and work together. And there's sanctions that go on between them and there's the possibilities of war. So they do keep their spies and they do think, keep, keep things secret in that, but not everything. They do also have to sort of work with the community in that. Just like when the coronavirus started, the Chinese scientists started working immediately with uh, doctors and scientists in the U S and abroad to, to start tackling, um, mm-hmm. you know, they sequenced the genome and they shared the information and all that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about um, this sentiment now that people say, uh, you know, young, healthy people don't need to get the vaccine. Uh, because if the people who are are vulnerable are vaccinated, then we're all good. Right. Um, Come on. Mm. Let's. uh, Yeah. Uh, That was, uh, that's really, it's disappointing for me to hear uh, certain people saying that. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's true that young healthy people are less likely to uh, suffer severe disease from the virus, but you're not safe from it. Uh, and the two, the two, so the, yeah, the two big points is that one, you're not safe from it. You could still have a severe disease or you could have uh, long COVID. You could have long lasting uh, detrimental effects from the infection. Uh, the second important point is it's not just about you, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, surprise. <laughs> va- <laughs> none, of, none of the precautions we have, including vaccines are hundred percent effective. They're not going to work for everybody. So if young, healthy people, which is a large portion of the population, don't get the vaccine, not only are you going to have um, some people who are the unlucky ones who have severe disease or long COVID, uh, you're going to have this kind of pool of the population where the virus is able to spread and evolve. And eventually that's going to endanger even the vaccinated. Uh, The virus has potential to evolve to a point where it no longer is affected uh, by the immune response that the original vaccines have put in place. Um, And also the people who maybe didn't get full protection from the vaccine, because again, it's not hundred percent effective Mm -hmm. are also at risk. So it's, 
it's at the end of the day, it's irresponsible to say I'm young and healthy and I don't need the COVID vaccine and you don't need it either. Like, (laughs) yeah. And you'd be surprised. I mean, there, there are a few people who say that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I I put out a post recently of just calling on my 30 something cohort to just, you know, let's get Mm -hmm. the shot, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people very positive. And of course, a couple of negative comments. And that was the, that was the one thing that they're hung up on is, um, you know, people are afraid of the AstraZeneca blood clots. And I just, mm. we just try to say, you know, compare that to the possibility of blood clots with COVID or let right, alone birth right. control or smoking cigarettes and all mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Um, right. These are the things that people need to think about. Um, yeah. And again, it's trusting the experts, which some people are confused about this, but um, experts in public health and the field of virology and that, and you know, uh, epidemiology, right. all that. They're telling us that the people who invented the vaccines are saying, this is why we invented them. We'd like you to use them this way, please. And then the public is saying, no, I don't think that that's how they should be used. It's mm-hmm. like, it's not your field. Like you right. just don't yeah. have it. But, but they think there's this anti-expertise thing that's been brewing as well. And I struggled to wrap my head around that because um, people, like somebody said this to me, Oh, the experts, like the ones who brought us into the Iraq war. I was just thinking like (laughs) Colin Powell, like, so Colin Powell is not telling me to take the vaccine. Like it's, that's not, I think people get confused about government and sort of this body of scientists. They think that, oh, you're doing what your government's telling you. Therefore, like uh, reductio ad Hitlerum or whatever that (laughs) thing is, where they reduce everything to Nazism or Hitler. Oh God. Yeah. Right. So (laughs) you're trusting your government blindly. Therefore you are slaves and all our sheep and all that, but no, uh, we're trusting experts in the field of science who study this stuff. And, you know, yeah. Like I get comments all the time on my videos, like, Oh, so you trust the government? No. Where did I say that? No, I'm, I'm not talking about the government. I'm talking about data. Like data is what I work with. Data is what I understand. So that's what yeah. I go to. Yeah. I don't just trust. Yeah, the government's you know. just listening to what well, they should be as much as possible. Sometimes they don't, but listening to the public mm-hmm. health experts as to what is the best uh, way to go. Cause I, I always say this too, politicians have a job to keep too. They, they don't want the public to all hate them. So they're going to try to stay in power by like, let's agree that they're power hungry. Right. So how do you stay in power? You please the people. Mm -hmm. Right. In a democracy, at least, unless you're in one of these countries that, you know, forges their (laughs) vote systems or whatever. Right. And uh, so the only other thing there is like some people who are distrusting experts are trusting people or or, sorry, let me start over with that. Uh, Some of the people who are distrusting experts are distrusting experts because an expert told them so. And like, you know, we just talked about, um, you know, the, the Judy Mikevitzes mm-hmm. and people who say these things and then people hear them and think, oh, well, this person has a real virology degree. Maybe I should listen to them. Meanwhile, you have literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other equally, if not more qualified experts saying the exact opposite. They're just, they just don't have a platform like Judy Mikovits does. And so understanding that the expertise is definitely in one camp and these few loud voices are at complete odds with that is something that I think is really important for people to try and navigate in this COVID landscape. 
Yeah, and maybe we sh- maybe should have said this at the top of the show, but I'll put it in the notes that the Disinfo Dozen is apparently responsible for 65%. There are 12 people that are responsible for 65% of the yeah. disinformation about vaccines. And there's been articles that have come out about this as well. Um, so how did we determine that? Like, uh, did, how do they measure that percentage in that? So I, I actually didn't look too far into their methods there. Um, it, it was a, uh, a nonprofit group called the Center for Countering Digital Hate. They apparently did a, like, a, they tried to find the origins of specific claims. Yeah. And, like, I, I don't know how, the, how that Plus stuff works. Just how measure impressions and interactions or posts and right. followers, that kinds of different social metrics, uh, social media metrics, probably. Yeah. Like, they, they have methods of tracing who retweeted what first and all that stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so moving on to a couple more of these speed, let's go speed round with some of these yeah. uh, vaccine passports for, or the con- vaccinations. Now pe- people keep yelling about this forced fact. I don't want to take it if I don't, uh, if I don't want to, right. Or I don't have to take it if I don't want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think forced vaccinations was ever a concept, like a real plan. I don't think they, cause I, I just think that they have already, determined at the beginning like that's we're not going to try that no one's going to go for that yeah yeah right and then maybe you could talk about what your opinion on passports is because what i what i seem to glean so far is that there may be some forms of international passport but there are privacy concerns in the u.s and canada and different in europe and that Mm -hmm. uh it, it probably won't be something like where you need it to go to the movies or to a concert although some people are supportive of that but do you think that'll be a thing or what are your concerns there? I, I think that's really hard to enforce. I don't think it's going to be a, a thing where you have to have a vaccine passport to go to a concert. I don't think it's going to reach that level. Um, will it reach a level where you need to have something like that to go to a different country? That's, that's possible. That's because that, that already happens. You know, if, if I want to go uh, visit my family in Southern Africa I have to have certain vaccines. I have to, you know, they, they require that. If you want to go travel to India, you have to have certain vaccines. You have, you have these things already in place. Vaccine passports are already a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And even with universities, if you want to attend certain universities, you have to be up to date on your vaccinations. You have to provide those records. So, you know, there is a precedent for it. Uh, It wouldn't be hard to incorporate into existing uh, existing systems, but it's not going to be a thing where you can't go anywhere without being vaccinated. No one, all those, car, all those weird cartoons where they're holding you down and vaccinating you. That's, I mean, that's fear mongering. That's not, no one's going to do that. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's kind of, what I, would say. <laughs> I do have, uh, you know, some friends of the show will say that have said, uh, those types of things. And I, I just, my thoughts is it's just it's just it's it's too much for them to even worry about like i mean i guess i could for concerts you could see maybe because we already have our tickets on our phone so maybe having some sort of digital wallet with your vaccine uh, proof is maybe. not that much of a big deal but i just think it's especially because of um at least in canada let's say i, I believe about 91 percent of people either have a shot or are going to get it or maybe mm. not right away but we'll wait a little bit to get it there's only a small percentage that uh really don't want to get it um and i know in the states it's a little a little larger percentage that don't want to get it so but i mean i think we're seeing how effective the vaccines are um oh yeah right mm-hmm. and and so <laughs> Like, I mean, we, we may just not need that because it may be such a, 
the vaccines are going to be so widespread that perhaps or hopefully COVID will just sort of ultimately be defeated and won't come back uh, for round two. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, with the way things are going now, hopefully, hopefully uh, COVID will be pushed down to a level where it's completely manageable. And that's always really been the goal. You know, you don't want to have this situation where you're yo-yoing from, okay, we we're plateauing at a few thousand cases a day to, oh my God, now we're having tens of thousands of cases every day. Uh, you know, you, d- you just don't want that uh, situation to happen. Yeah. Uh, and we're hopefully getting to a point where we'll keep it at a low plateau. Um, so yeah, I don't really see vaccine passports being like a part of everyday life ever. I just don't see that being feasible or, yeah. or enforceable. Even, even local, I know local grocery stores around here have said, um, have put up signs saying, you know, if you're vaccinated, you're not required to wear a mask. Uh, but you know, they don't enforce that. There's no way for, there's no one checking to see if you have your vaccine card on you at the door. I I think (laughs) we just need to give each other the benefit of the doubt on a large scale. Like, I mean, for myself too, when I get the shot, I'm maybe let's say if I get my first shot, maybe I should wear a mask all the time still until they tell me not to, but I'm still going to use my own risk assessment, my own judgment to, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of say when I get one or when I get two, I'm just going to not. Right. And and I think that number of people who are not going to get vaccinated, but also don't want to wear a mask. is just got to be small enough that it won't really matter at that point. I would hope. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm fully vaccinated right now and uh, I still wear my mask out just uh, because it just, I don't trust people. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's uh, your personal risk assessment, I guess. Right. But uh, yeah, it is. And we're um, all, this is a confusing time, the whole pandemic. I mean, we talk about all these different camps of beliefs and, and fears and different things, and it's hard to stay up with the news. It's hard to stay up with the science. It's changing so fast. And it is, I, I don't it really is. blame people necessarily for being confused, mm-hmm. not understanding something. I, I just like yourself, I do blame people who purposely put out this stuff that, uh, some of them know it's false or they're just, they really need to do more uh, critical thinking before they start saying our accusations really is what they're doing is accusing people, right. on, uh, you know, society on a large scale of various nefarious, uh, you know, wrongdoing. So, yeah, th- those, those people I have a uh, little patience for, but I have infinite patience, I would say for people who are, you know, confused uh, genuinely uh, because I will be one of the first to say that the messaging during this entire pandemic has been poor. You know, the science communication has not been great um, yeah. at, any, at any stage, I think. Well, even um, right now, isn't there still things that are confusing people? Like, I mean, yeah, the yeah. WHO and the CDC seems like, you know, they're, they're not even learning their lesson as they go as far as how to communicate effectively. But I, maybe that's just one of the biggest challenges that we have as a society is, a, is how to communicate these complex things to the average person. Yeah. I mean, in, in graduate school, when you're, you know, uh, working to get your PhD, there aren't very many efforts that I know of. Cause I I've talked to tons of other graduate students and other departments at other schools asking them like, Hey, d- does your department train you on like how to communicate science effectively? And if they do, you know, a lot of them don't, but if they do, it's, geared towards effective communication towards your colleagues, right? It's how to 
present data in a slide that is clear and concise and gets your main points across. But there is practically zero training, um, at least that I know of. There are probably some universities that have uh, programs for this, but mm-hmm. very few have uh, d- dedicated efforts to train their graduate students, their young scientists, to communicate with the public, right? Yes, people yes. who have no, people have little to no scientific uh, background. And, uh, you know, that, that hurts, that hurts society, <laughs> I think. Um, and even, even me, you know, I was always really interested in science communication and it was tough to add that to my list of things to do. Um, and, you know, I would even have my finger wagged at me sometimes by people saying like, you know, that's, that's kind of a waste of time. You, that's not going to get you a job. And it's like, well, but yeah. I think it's important. I want it. I want to yeah. communicate science to people totally. because if we, if we don't, if scientists don't communicate science effectively, then, you know, we're not there, but what if just, what if we uh, make some life-changing uh, life-saving drug and nobody wants it. Nobody trusts it because we have communicated so poorly. I mean, that's a extreme scenario, but that drives me a lot to be like, well, I don't want that to happen. I don't even want, you know, 30% of the population to say, I don't trust that. Therefore I'm never going to take it. That, that hurts. That's not good. (laughs) That's a great point. It it makes me think about the comparison to historically when just literacy itself wasn't widespread. Right when we only the priests and the the leaders ne- needed to be literate, and uh, you know eventually everybody had literacy. But the, maybe scientific literacy is sort of the next revolution where we need to find out a way to make it widespread. And then, like we said earlier, there's many people in this space that are like pioneers. Um, mm-hmm. But it's we need like more, I guess. Uh, we need to be more of an important thing. Um, maybe we could close on this topic uh, generally of. Um, just the death count of COVID and sort of how it relates oh. to, um, um, you know, the, the falsity of doctors getting extra money just to write down COVID or multiple death <laughs> yeah. certificates. We could talk about the 6% uh, myth. That, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the death count that I just read about um, the overall deaths globally are up like t- two to three times the COVID death count. So whether that's uncounted COVID deaths or perhaps other deaths just related to the pandemic, um, you know, that's, so a lot of people who are COVID deniers think that the count is much less than the official count, but actually scientists right. think that the count is much higher than the official count. So, uh, it's a right. lot there, but I don't know if we could, uh, go into that a bit. Yeah, yeah totally. So, yeah, um, that's been a thing since the very beginning, uh, I think where people think that the count is inflated <clears throat> and it, it was weird to me at the start because, you know, people were questioning whether or not the cause of death was actually COVID. And my first, one of my first few thoughts on that was just, so do doctors suddenly not know how to determine the cause of death? Yes. They've all lost their ability. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, like, Like signing the death certificate and listing a cause of death is a big deal for a doctor. I mean, mm-hmm. and, it, and part of a, it's a big deal for the whole medical staff and team that goes into that decision. So 
the idea that they suddenly just didn't know how to die, how to um, determine the cause of death was, was weird to me. Um, but uh, yeah, people get ended up getting confused about uh, comorbidities and uh, things that were actually the cause of death and not COVID. Uh, and so the 6% number that you referenced that comes from this idea that 6% of COVID death certificates have only COVID listed as the cause of death, mm-hmm. um, which as far as I knew at the time that I researched that, that's true. But the comorbidities um, are things that are often directly caused by COVID. So, you know, you can go into the CDC uh, data, which I have linked in some of my videos, um, and look at the rate at which comorbidities are listed in death certificates. The most common comorbidities are uh, pneumonia and respiratory failure. Mm-hmm. Those are two things that COVID can directly cause. Um, because when a vi- when a virus like COVID infects you and causes severe disease, it's like it's ravaging your body. It's destroying, uh, it's damaging your lung tissue. It's um, your immune system is getting overwhelmed by it. Your immune system is being hyper-responsive to the point where you're, it's damaging your own body. So you're sustaining a lot of, you know, assault from this virus from multiple directions. And that makes you vulnerable to bacteria infection. So then you, people get bacterial pneumonia because they had a COVID infection And then that's what ultimately kills them. You know, that doesn't mean that COVID didn't kill them. It's exactly it's it's splitting hairs. It caused the thing which killed them. And they have this condition plus they have COVID and it's yeah. So um, yeah, my, my analogy is always like, okay, so if you, by that logic, you know, you could argue that a gunshot victim didn't actually die from, you know, bullets. They died from blood loss. That's what, killed them so yes so bullets, bullets really have yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like the the relationship between these things are completely missed by people yes. who um you know say those kinds of things yeah the other thing they say which is this uh anti-human i don't know what to call it but the the whole idea that you heard from the beginning of it's just old people dying and fat people and people with who eat bad food all day it's their fault for not being healthy that's why they're dying and i was always like you don't, do you have grandparents? Like, do you not? Yeah. You just don't like, care if they're 80 and over, like, see you later. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm, it, it was wild to me. Like it, it just, whatever people could say to um, not change their way of life was, was crazy. And, but, but, you know, to, to some extent I, I get it right. Like this pandemic did affect people's livelihoods. Yes. Yes. It, 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 it sucked, you know, um, People lost their jobs. People had to completely change their jobs. People uh, were sent into like, you know, mental stress and Mm -hmm. totally, I get it. And it would be great to just say like, it's nothing to worry about. Let's get back to life. But, you know, the, the irony to me is that if, if we did just acknowledge it as a collective uh, from the very beginning, acknowledge it as this threat. Yeah. And do the hard work to um, take the necessary precautions. The New Zealand style. Yeah. You know, then we, 
we could have been looking at a much shorter timeline, you know, from, we could have been looking at, um, we could have really been looking at a month or few weeks of lockdown instead of what it turned into, which was, you know, kind of a half-assed response that, um, didn't really do its job because it was half-assed, you know? So, yeah. The other irony is people who are obsessed about as they should be about the economy and their livelihoods and their jobs. Um, if you just let COVID run its course with no restriction, oh, yeah. about that yeah. all would have been destroyed as well to a greater degree. And yes. economists, I believe economists mostly agree on that. I mean, it's, again, it's hard for people to picture counterfactuals or like, it's hard for them to realize that say in Canada, it's only killed 25,000 people only, but h- how many would it have killed if it would have just been able to, you know, if every, everybody got infected. Cause also some people at the beginning said, you know, everyone's going to get this eventually we're all going to get infected. It's just a matter of fighting it off. And that it's like, it, that didn't happen. Like yeah, not no, that, got that, was, <laughs> that was never the uh, scientific stance. You know, yeah, it, yeah. it was never the, Oh, everybody's going to get it. It was like, this is going to be really bad if everyone gets it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, but you're right. I, I think we, we've heard the same, uh, information that economists have calculated out, like what's the economic cost of losing all these lives. And it's way more than lockdown. Um, yeah, totally. So, um, one yeah. final thing that I just thought of, uh, didn't want to miss this one is, uh, vaccine patents or the nature of patents themselves and how it relates to big pharma and funding and, mm-hmm. um, this kind of thing, uh, or profit in general, like how should people think about patents, um, when it comes to scientific things or patenting nature and that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> it's a, it's a really interesting question. Cause it's one of those things that I don't think about too often, but, uh, from what I understand, you know, patenting in farm in um, patenting in pharmaceutical companies is uh, a good incentive to uh, for them to fund the really expensive research that it takes to actually get a product to market, uh, because then they can actually, you know, make money make money back from all their investment, uh, and uh, with the with the case of COVID vaccines, uh, as far as I'm aware, you know, ideally you wouldn't have a patent and everybody would be able to get it. Uh, but I, as far as I'm aware, there are workarounds to please both the companies and have as many people get it as possible. Right. Uh, I don't know too much more about the specifics. Yeah, I I guess I'll have to get to a patent law guy because yeah, there's there's this headline, Joe Biden calls to waive vaccine patents. Uh, This will harm the development. Right. I heard about that. And um, again, I'm not too well versed on it either, but there's this concept that I think just like patents are evil. They're just to make profit. mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, I think there's a reason for them, you know, and, and big pharma, this is the kind of speaks to the, can't that there's a cure for cancer and they're just keeping it a secret all that stuff because mm, people mm-hmm. want to think that you know uh, people can only make money off of disease they can't make money off of cures for disease yeah not- that's not so i i think that's always a really interesting claim because i know i know of an example where there is a you know practical cure uh for a kind of cancer it's uh it's a specific kind of cancer called a chronic myelogenous leukemia. 
And before this drug was uh, invented, uh, that cancer was a practically a really painful death sentence. It was, it's really sad to hear the accounts of what that was like. <clears throat> but uh, Novartis, a uh, big biotech company, uh, and uh, this researcher, Brian Drucker, ended up, uh, through a long story, uh, inventing and patenting and selling this drug called um, Gleevec. And <clears throat> people who have that uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia and are on Gleevec, you know, upwards of 90 to 95% of them go on to live normal lives. Uh, and that, that was really powerful. But Novartis makes a killing off that drug. They, they make so much money off that drug. So the idea that, um, and, and Brian Drucker, the researcher associated with that drug, by the way, has been very vocal about his problems with um, how much money it costs to uh, be on that drug. Mm. Um, but the idea that pharmaceutical companies can't make money off of cures, quote unquote cures, um, it's, well, it's, it's almost true. one of the problems actually, right? Like you just mentioned that a drug could be prohibitively expensive. Like there's so much profit to be made that that's actually another problem that we're facing is that um, depending on which country you're in and, and your health insurance situation and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I mean, there's no reason that companies can't make tons of money off of cures because a cure is going to be in high demand. Right. Um, and, I think what a lot of people have to understand about vaccines is that vaccines as a moneymaker is they're not good as moneymakers, right? Ideally a pharmaceutical company, you know, you hear about all, a lot of the corruption and stuff with pharmaceutical companies. It has mm -hmm. to do with things like uh, painkillers, opioids, Purdue family. And the... yeah. 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 I mean, there's very real stuff. I, I've, so I'm not surprised that people think these things, but and they, and they have total precedence too, but, yeah. um, you know, vaccines are just not great money makers because they're drugs like pain, make, right? they're very cheap to make, uh, they're cheap to make and they're cheap to sell. I mean, mm -hmm. vaccines are not expensive. Most people can get them for free with, if they have health insurance, mm -hmm. so they don't really make a killing and you know, it's a couple doses and you're, you're good, um, for at least, you know, a while. It's not like you have to, it's not like hospitals are constantly going to be ordering lots and lots of this medication to give to patients on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, it's just not, it's just different volumes. Uh, so they're not going to be making as much money off of vaccines as they are off of a drug that treats the illness. Right. So because, because also, if you're in the hospital getting treated for that illness, not only do you have to have that drug that um, that is going to treat you for, say, COVID, but you're also going to be getting other things while you're in the hospital, right? You're going to be getting fluids. You're probably going to be getting other little medications here and there. So there are lots of other places where they're making money off of you, essentially. But if you get vaccinated and you never have to go to the hospital because you never get sick, it's a lot. The bill is a lot cheaper. Totally. Um, you've mentioned this concept too of, um, 
not being allowed to question things, which is something you hear from sort of anti-taxers, <laughs> yeah. right? Like we're they're only we're only arguing with them because there's you know they're not allowed to ask questions. And you've you've mentioned on your channel before that like asking questions is the basis of science. Like it's mm -hmm. what they do we do on a regular basis. It's just a matter of how are we finding the answers? Are we yes. finding it with peer-reviewed studies and and replicating studies? Uh, or are we just finding it from some pandemic documentary, right? Right, yeah. It's, I, I can guarantee you, right, that almost any question that a conspiracy theorist might ask about <clears throat> vaccines or COVID or whatever, a scientist probably asked that same question. Mm -hmm. And you can probably find somewhere in the literature um, data that answers that question. Um, you know, it, it, it's of course really tough to sift through literature sometimes, but I would bet that the answer is there. Um, for example, with the antibody dependent enhancement, which is something that conspiracy theorists have been going around for a while um, with this vaccine and has been making people hesitant to get the vaccine. This idea that getting the vaccine for COVID will make you more susceptible to severe disease once you actually encounter the real thing, that the immunity that you grant granted to you from the vaccine is going to enhance the disease somehow. Mm -hmm. um, I say somehow, but we know how it happens. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, that's a, it's a real phenomenon. And scientists ask the question, do we need to worry about this? And specific, it was specifically addressed in animal studies uh, during development of the vaccine right? Uh, they gave COVID vaccines to uh, primates, uh, non-human primates, and then challenged them with the SARS-CoV-2. And there was no evidence of disease enhancement at all. Uh, so it's, that's a clear example of, you know, conspiracy theorists are asking this question. Yeah. Scientists asked it too, but they found the answer. Then yeah. that's the difference is that they'll ask you a question as a viewer of their to documentary, you know, what about this and what about that? And it's like they're posing the question as if there ha hasn't been asked or there is no answer. But I just right. encourage I encourage listeners or if you have a friend that thinks this way, just uh, you know, if if they have a question or they're confused, because often people say that too. I'm just confused. You know, why is this? Mm -hmm. It's like it's okay to be confused. Just you admitted you're confused, and then go research. Um, you know, the answer to that question. It's totally totally fine. Right. Yeah. It's totally okay to be confused. And yeah, I just want to say again, like the messaging has been poor. So I totally get being confused. I mean, uh, I, I say now and again, you know, I never thought that I would be debunking this much stuff about PCR. Right. Right. So PCR polymerase chain reaction, that's a technique that I learned uh, in a lot of detail, uh, you know, throughout college. And I used it a lot in my graduate work. Uh, and now it's a household name, PCR. People say COVID PCR tests are flawed for this and that. And it's like, wow, I, I had no idea that it would get to this. But I mean, it's a complicated technique that's not obviously explained to a lot of people. So they just hear these headlines or hear conspiracy theorists say, thing, say things very confidently. And, uh, you know, it's easy to fall for. I, I totally get it. I totally get being thrown off by it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just the general 
humans are very enthralled by cinematics, by movies. Mm-hmm. And that when mm-hmm. we watch documentaries, it's it's the way they put it together with the music. And then yeah. there's also this feeling of, well, they're, they're making this whole production around this. There's no way it could be based on lies because how <laughs> yeah. could they get away with that, right? That's kind of at least how I sort of got into a lot of different things was just sort of believing the face value uh, productions mm-hmm. like that. But um, we've covered a lot of ground, Dr. Wilson, and I uh, we'll just want to yeah. say thanks again for taking the time. And uh, let's plug your YouTube channel again. It's uh, Debunk the Funk. Is that correct? Yep. Debunk the Funk on YouTube. Uh, I'm on Twitter at the same and I got a Facebook called uh, Doc Wilson Debunks. Awesome. <laughs> and we're looking forward to the rest of the series of the Disinformation Dozen. Um, when can we expect uh, the next one to drop? Yeah. So the next one uh, I'm doing Ty and Charlene Bollinger. It's going to drop on uh, this coming Tuesday. So um, it'll be what? May 25th? Something like that. Yeah, May 25th. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. Can't wait. And um, for everybody that's listening, yeah, go check out the channel and um be encouraged, encourage yourself and others to ask questions, but just know that there, uh, there may be answers to those questions. You mm-hmm. just maybe haven't found them yet. Yeah. Scientists are hyper competitive nerds who love to ask questions. <laughs> totally. Hey, uh, thanks again. And, uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Hey, thanks a lot, Derek. I okay. really appreciate it being here. Yeah. Take care.